Children will be dismissed at this time to their classes. And uh, the rest of you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we have uh, been looking at this section, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. We, we, in our first uh, message, we looked at basically the, the general principle that's given to us out of, out of this text in Matthew 6. And uh, we see it kind of over and, and, and over again. You see it in verse 25 where he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry. And what he's saying there is uh, uh, stop worrying. He's assuming that you're worrying. Uh, how many of you worried this last week? Come on, be honest. Yeah, we all have, right? I mean, we all worry to some extent every day. But what the Word of God clearly says is that worry is not something that should be in the life of the child of God, someone who's trusted Christ for their salvation. Um, and so he says that in verse 25. He also says it in verse 31 and 34. And what he's saying in those verses is not necessarily stop worrying, but don't start worrying. Because if all you have to do is sit around and start thinking about things, and uh, you, can, you can work yourself into a, a, a big worry real quick. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so important for us to understand that this command that he gives us Stop worrying. Do not worry. He, he even goes on and he, he lays out to it for us what we shouldn't worry about. And the first part of this whole thing, he's talking about the luxuries of life. And then he's talking about laying up treasure in heaven and having all this abundance at our, uh, at our fingertips. But then he brings this down to the necessities. What we have each and every day. And he gives us three illustrations. And all this is kind of just review. You can get the message from two weeks ago. But he kind of gives us this guiding protection. And he says, first of all, don't worry. It's unnecessary as a believer to worry because of who your father is. And he says that in verses 26 to 30. He says, don't worry because of who your father is. And he gives us three illustrations there. He says, first of all, don't worry about food in verse 26. And then he says, don't worry about your future in verse 27. And then he says, don't worry about what you're going to wear, your fashion in verses 28 to 30. Read this little thing this last week. It says, the best don't worry appeal has been issued by the United States Public Health Service. And here's what they said, and I thought this was, this was good. It said, in a statement presenting statistics on nervous diseases and showing the tendency of the worry habit to shorten life, here's what they said. Quote, so far as it is known, no bird ever tried to build more nests than its neighbor. No fox ever fretted because he had only one hole in which to hide. No squirrel ever died of anxiety lest he should not lay up or lay by enough nuts for two winters instead of one. No dog ever lost any sleep over the fact that he did not have enough bones laid aside for his declining years. And I thought, boy, that is so important. We tend to worry about the silliest things sometimes. And Scripture says very clearly here, lay up not for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust and everything destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And we also read this morning that where your uh, heart is, where your treasure is, there's your heart as well. And so he wants us to understand clearly that worry is not something that should be in the life of a believer on a consistent basis. And frankly, some people just worry themselves sick, literally. And so what, what Matthew is doing here, what Jesus is teaching us here, is he's showing us that even in everyday practical life, there's this general principle, don't worry about it. You know, we've all heard the song, don't worry, be what? Happy. Okay? Well, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. 
And what he does is he brings it down, and you're not going to worry about the luxuries. We talked about the wealth, having the wealth and everything that in, in previous messages. But when you come down to the basic necessities of life, what he's telling us in verse 25, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be a worry wart. Don't worry about your provisions, what God is going to uh, help you out with. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your drink. Don't worry about your clothes. And he lays it right out there for us. And the first reason is because of who your father is. See, a lot of times Christians don't have the right concept of who God is. If believers could only get a hold of the idea that God is, if they could look at God their father, and say, you know what? You're the owner of everything. You control everything. You provide everything there is. Besides that, the Bible teaches that you're a loving father. Now, some of you may have had fathers growing up that weren't too loving. And so you're kind of, you look at, you know, somebody mentions God as being your father, and you just kind of, you know, you do somersaults in your head. But God is a loving father. We're going to be getting into that in a, in a couple of weeks in Matthew 7 when he talks about how loving our God is. But if he has all things under his control, and he controls all those things on behalf of his children, and if you're his child, if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, that should be the death of worry in your life, right there. And I think it's so important that we realize that and that we understand that. Because today, believers, you know, people were worrying about everything. Hans Christian Andersen, the author of a lot of well-known fairy tales, one of them was The Emperor's New Clothes, you've probably heard about that, he actually had a phobia about being buried alive. He had a fear that he was going to be buried alive. Now, I mean... If somebody's going to bury me alive, I'd have that fear too, right? I mean, nobody wants to be buried alive. But as a result of this fear, which was unfounded, it was just a phobia in his life, he always carried a note in his pocket. And the note basically said, if anyone would find him unconscious, to lose consciousness somehow, do not assume that he is dead. He actually carried a note in his pocket. When he went to bed at night, he left a note on his nightstand. I am only sleeping. I am not dead. We laugh. But that's the extent to which this guy worried about being buried alive. And such was his anxiety up until he succumbed to cancer in 1875. See, there's a strategy, a strategy that you can, that can help you win the battle over anxiety, win the battle over worry. And it's, it's kind of simple, but it works. First of all, identify what you're worrying about. Just identify your worries. Identify what you're anxious about. And then work hard to change what you can about those worries. You know, I remember when I was riding my motorcycle, down on Page Mill Road a couple weeks ago and kind of struck me as I left El Camino and started up Page Mill over to 280. Something, just small voice said, you know, you ought to maybe stop and get some gas. And I said, ah, what's there to worry about? Nothing to worry about. I'm sure I got gas in my motorcycle and I'm looking at the dial, the mileage thing, and it's saying like 120 and I'm thinking, I can't remember if I reset it when I refilled the tank because I don't have a gas gauge on the motorcycle. It's just, you just go by miles. So I'm almost up to the top of Page Mill and there's no gas stations on Page Mill between El Camino and 280. And I start down the other side and all of a sudden, whoa, 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 starts sputtering and I'm thinking, okay. This happened to me before on the freeway. Now I know my motorcycle has a reserve. You know, just flip the reserve on and we'll be fine. I'll make it home or make it to a gas station. Turn around and go back down to El Camino, find a gas station. Still wasn't worrying. And turn the little fuel cock there up and still sputtering. Well, somehow I ran not only the tank out, but I ran the reserve out too. I don't know how this happened. This doesn't happen often to me. But I still wasn't worrying because I had my cell phone with me. 
And when you got your cell phone with you, you just got everything, you know. So I dial up my wife and, you know, I said, hey, I need, you know, so I'm on the phone. I said, well, you need to get off the phone because, you know, it's really hot out here. And I'm standing in a grove of trees alongside a page mill by 280. And you need to go into the shed and get the gas can and, and, and bring it down. And, you know, there's gas in it already. And, and she was probably asking, how does this happen to him, you know. I'm just thankful that she didn't try to call somebody else in the church and tell them that, hey, my husband ran out of gas near 280. Could you go? Because they probably think it was a joke and they'd never show up because she's done this before. But she came and, and everything. But I wasn't really worried about the idea there that, that I was going to run out of gas. It wasn't, wasn't that big of a deal. You know, I kind of identified the problem. But what I do, I didn't do anything to change the problem. That's the second thing. Identify your worries. Secondly, work to change what you can. I could have stopped at El Camino and got gas. I could have done it. But I didn't. Third thing is leave what you can't change to God. Leave what you can't change to God. Simple formula. But it works. It really does. Sometimes people come into counseling and they got all this stuff and they're just throwing all this stuff at you. And you want to send them away with something. But you're, you're yourself as the receptor of all this stuff they're throwing at you. You're feeling overwhelmed with their circumstances. And I always fall back on this principle. It's like, you know what? You know, especially in relations, sometimes relationships, they're talking about the other person. I said, you know what? You can't control the other person. The only thing you can control is yourself. And whether you're going to respond in a godly manner, whether you're going to do what Christ wants you to do or not, you can't. Well, yeah, but he, he's doing this. It doesn't matter. What can you control? And you go back to what you can control. So identify the worry, work to change what you can, and then leave the rest to God. Uh, some people worry about everything. And it's just, it's just kind of a crazy. And they have a, a flawed idea of who their father is. And God doesn't want us to be in that situation. He wants us to know who God is. He wants us to know that Philippians 4.19, Paul wrote, But my God shall supply what? All your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That doesn't sound like a, a gray statement there. My God shall supply all your needs. So why are you worrying about your needs? Why are we worrying about our clothing, what we can eat, the price of gas? You know, it is what it is. Worrying about it's not going to change anything. You know, there was a guy in the Bible in the New Testament, Peter. He was a worrier. If you look at Peter and you look at the texts that deal with Peter, he was worried about drowning when he was walking on the water, even though he was right there with the Lord in Matthew 14. He was worried about what was going to happen when Jesus was in the garden. So what did he do? He pulled out his sword and he tried to cut off the head of one of the arresting officers and he missed and just got his ear and Jesus had to heal him. He worried about Jesus being crucified. And basically, he told our Lord not to go to the cross. You're not going to the cross. This is not going to happen. And Jesus had to turn to him and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. Strong terminology to use against one of his disciples. He had a wrong perception of what was going on all around him because he was worrying about things. But you know what? I love Peter because Peter finally got it right. He finally got it right. In 1 Peter 5, 7, here's what he wrote. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote, cast all your care upon him. For he cares for you. Did you ever tell somebody something and they go, who cares? Doesn't feel very good. It just kind of strikes at something in your heart. It's like, hey, can I just bore my soul to you? And you're just going, who cares? God will never say who cares. I don't care what problem you're facing. I don't care what situation is going on in your life or your marriage or your finances or whatever it may be. God will never turn to you and say, who cares? You think I care? I don't care. He will never do that. Because Scripture says that we should come to Him, we should cast, we should throw, we should lavish is the idea. All of our cares, all of our concerns, all of our worries, all of our anxieties upon Him. Literally taking them load by load and throwing them upon him. Why? Because he doesn't care? No, because he cares for you. He wants to meet you right where you're at and he wants to take you where he wants you to be. 
It took Peter a while to learn that. He worried about a lot of things in his life. But in the end, he got it right. There's still time. We can still get it right. You don't have to leave here worrying about, oh, you know, how are we going to make the mortgage? How are we going to do this? How are we going to fill the tank? How are we? It's just crazy. I mean, I used to think, you know, riding my motorcycle was great, you know, and then you go and you fill up the motorcycle and it's $15. Whoa! You know, slap a reality here. You know, wow, what's going on? You go fill up your car and it's pushing 100 bucks. You know, we do live in troubled times. But I'm here to tell you that God is there for us. And He always will be. Now remember, He's talking to believers here. He's addressing believers in our text here in Matthew 6. And we, we kind of worked our way down to verse 30. And that's where I want to pick up today, there in verse 30. Because he used these illustrations of, of the, the food and the, the clothing and the future. And he said, you know what, don't be worried about those things. But then he's talking to his disciples and, and he gives them kind of a, an indictment here in verse 30. Toward the end. He says, oh, you of what? Little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. The King James says. You have to ask yourself, if you're worrying as a believer, what kind of faith do you manifest? What kind of faith do you have? The Bible says it's little faith. It's puny faith. It's, you know what? It's inadequate faith. It's small faith. And the sum of that attitude, that little faith, basically causes us to worry and fret about food, about clothes, about lifespan, how long we're going to live. And that's the attitude of someone who has little faith. That's what the Bible's saying. It really represents the idea of worrying. That word, those words there, oh, you of little faith, it's used four other times in the Gospels. Just four times. And it's very interesting because when you look up these four times, one's over in Luke chapter 12, verse 28. And what were the people doing? They were worrying about clothing. The next one is over in Matthew chapter 8, verses 24 to 26, when the disciples were worried about drowning. They were afraid that the Lord was going to let them drown. Remember when they were out on the, the sea? Then they said to him, how can you sleep when the storm is going to drown us? They were worrying. In Matthew 14, verse 31, it's used when Peter was worrying about drowning when he was walking on the, the water with our Lord. And then in Matthew 16, verse 8, it's, it's used when they were worrying about food. It's interesting to me, out of these four times that it's used in the Gospels, every time this phrase is used, it refers to someone who worried about food, clothing, or their lifespan. Interesting. The basics of life. And every time he directed his speaking to who? To unbelievers? No. Every time he was talking to who? His disciples. He was talking to those who have, should have known better about this. I mean, when you stop and you think as a believer, you believe that God can redeem you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can save you from sin? Do you believe that God can break the shackles of Satan on your life? Do you believe that God can take you from heaven to hell? That He can put you from uh, darkness into light? That He can put you in His kingdom? That He can give you eternal life? And then we look and we go, oh, I have nothing to wear. I have nothing to eat. How long am I going to live? I'm going to worry about those things. Pretty ridiculous. We can believe God for the bigger gift, and then we stumble, and we can't believe Him for the lesser one. The one that He promises us. We believe that God is going to take us to heaven when we die, but we don't believe that He's able to provide the next meal for us, or to take care about how long we're going to live. See, the fact that Jesus spoke to his disciples when he was saying this, O you of little faith, it indicates to me very strongly that this passage is geared for believers. It's for those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ. He would never say to someone who didn't believe in him, who was an unbeliever, O you of little faith. Why? They have no faith. 
Faith is the gift of God. We have the faith as believers, but sometimes, you know what? We just don't apply it. We just don't apply it. Do you ever think what the results of worry were in your life? The results of anxiety? Uh, worry really it strikes out against God. That's the first thing it does. Someone might say, well, you know, you're being kind of, that's crazy. Worry is such a trivial. It's not like I'm out murdering people. It's not like I'm out getting drunk and sleeping around. I mean, those are real sins. You know, worry, are you saying worry is a sin? Yeah, I'm saying worry is a sin. For the child of God, worry is a sin. And you know what? It's no trivial sin. Because that one little sin that we think in our mind is a little sin has the ability to dominate our life and our thinking. It can dominate us spiritually, it can dominate us physically, it can dominate us mentally. Just this last week, September 6th, I read an article. The article is titled, Stress Level Increases What? Allergies. You hear that? Did you read that? Incredible. It says in the article, Stress is a state of bodily or mental tension resulting from factors that tend to alter an existence of equilibrium. Okay. Basically, saying stress is worry. Stress is anxiety. But here's what he says. This article goes on. It says, stress is an unavoidable effect of living and is an especially complex phenomenon in modern technological society. It has been linked to coronary heart disease. Listen to these. Psychosomatic disorders, various other mental and physical problems. And he breaks down here how when you're stressed, it affects your blood and, and it, it, it really increases your ability to, to, to kind of ward off these allergies. So the next time you got a headache, a sinus headache, and your allergies are killing you, stop and say, hey, what am I worried about? Because that may be the cause. Not every time, but it may be. Worry is a devastating thing. In our world, in our community, in our own lives. And when we're worrying, what we're saying to God is, God, you know what? I just don't think you can take care of this. This one's too big for you, God. I'm, I'm just going to worry about it. And that's silly. There was one guy who was just having all these issues in his life. And he was, you know, just under a lot of stress. And friend came over and he was kind of going through the, you know, well, identify the problem, do something about it. And he said, you know, you're not doing anything. You know, why don't you, why don't you do something with your hands to get, to relieve some of this worry in your life? And he said, sat on his couch. He says, I am, I'm wringing my hands. And that's how we look at it. Sometimes we think, well, I'm just going to worry. And the Bible clearly says, that's not going to do any good. So it, it disbelieves God. It also disbelieves Scripture. It's a monumental sin because worry disbelieves what the Word of God that we claim to love and to cherish and to hold to be true. It, it says just the opposite. You can say, well, I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. I believe God wrote it every word, every jot, every tittle, all this stuff. I believe in the absolute authority of Scripture in my life. I believe it's verbal and plenary and inspiration, every word. But I'm just going to worry about living <laughs> Even though there's so many promises in there, I couldn't even count them, but I'm still going to worry. Why would you say you believe the Bible and then worry about your own life when you realize God is the one who fulfills those promises? Third thing is worry is mastered by circumstances. Worry is mastered by circumstances. See, worry means that you're, you're being mastered by your circumstances and you're not being mastered by the truth that you find in God's Word. I've said this before so many times. You ask somebody, how are you doing? How was your week? Well, it was all right, under the circumstances. Doesn't sound too good to me. Why don't we reframe? You know, just say I had a rotten week. I mean, you know, that would be a lot more honest and open. See, worry misunderstands our position as a child of God. That's what it does. We forget that God's our Father. We forget the character and the nature and the attributes that make up God. Pretty soon we're fretting, you know. 
What if the plane goes down today? Hey, whatever. You know, I mean, it's silly to worry about that kind of stuff. It's so silly. You're not going to do anything about it. I mean, if it's your time, it's your time. Somebody said that one time, and they said, well, I don't care about your time. I want to know if the pilot's time or not. That's the one that counts in this situation. <laughs> so, but worry is mastered by our circumstances. It's a, it's a devastating sin. And it, it, it almost makes us kind of just paralyzed in our faith. And it really is calling God a liar. It's ignoring his love, his power, and it's saying, hey, you know what, I'm... I'm just going to worry about this because I know you say you're going to provide, but I don't see anything on the table yet, so I'm just going to sit here and worry about it. Silly. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, listen what the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 19. He says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. And you read the rest of that chapter beginning and, and after those verses, I mean, there's so many blessings, spiritual blessings that Paul throws out there at us. It's incredible. So worry's mastered by our circumstances. And then the last thing, worry basically distrusts God. If you're worrying, you're not trusting your heavenly Father, whom you're going to trust to take you to heaven one day, but you're not going to trust for these menial things in your life on an everyday basis. If you don't trust your heavenly father, the number one cause might be that, you know what? You don't know your heavenly father. You may not know him. You may not be saved. You may not have come to a point in time where you cried out to God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Every person on the face of the earth is faced with that kind of a decision. And what they do with Christ is what's going to matter. It's not going to matter how good a dad you are or how good a of, of husband you are or how good of you know person you are in the city council or, or at work or how much charity you gave. That's not going to mean squat to God in the end. What he's going to say is, what did you do with my son? Was he your Lord or not? Did you yield your life to him or did you just live on in your own selfish way? Did you trust in his sacrifice on the cross? Or did you just continue to trust in your works, thinking that somehow you're going to nail it and, and claw it all the way up to the, the gates of heaven? And there's a lot of people in the church today that have that kind of mentality. I'm just going to live a good life. I'm just going to do this and do that. And one day they're going to stand before the gates of heaven and they're going to hear our Lord tell them, you know what? Depart from me. I never knew you ever doesn't say i knew you at one time and then you walked away now it says i never knew you it's important an important decision so the first reason that we it's uncharacteristic for the believer to have this anxiety have this worry in their life is because of their father secondly in verses 31 to 32 it says because of our faith because of our faith In Matthew 6, verses 31 and 32, look at what it says. Therefore, do not worry. In other words, don't start worrying, saying what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall wear. Same three three things, he points out. Same three illustrations. In verse 32, he says, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He brings up the Gentiles. What's he talking about here? Who are the Gentiles? The Gentile was basically, it can be translated, we don't like this word, it's not politically correct to use this word, but pagan or heathen. It basically means people who are without Christ. That's who a Gentile would be considered. And what he's saying is, these people worry about this world. That's what they worry about. Because that's all they got going for them. You wonder why some of these rich guys, you know, are so worried about their legacy and everything? Because that's all they got. They don't have a mansion in heaven waiting for them. Because their faith is in something else other than the risen Lord. 
Their faith may be in their money. Their faith may be in their business. Their faith may be in all myriad of things, a false religion, whatever it may be. But their faith isn't in Christ. And so everything they got, they're getting right now. That's who a Gentile is. And they, they, they live for this present world. It's interesting when people who are outside of Christ, whether it's nations or peoples or whoever, they make up a God. Whenever they make up their own deity, inevitably those deities are not the kind of deity that you would kind of like to cozy up to. Whenever nations of the world build their own God, they're typically gods of Satan and the demons behind those gods. And they're usually the gods of broken promises, the gods of lack, who lack compassion, the gods of fear, the gods of dread, the gods that have to be appeased. I mean, in the Old Testament, they had gods that they would actually sacrifice their babies to. Times haven't changed much, have they? This country sacrifices millions of unborn children. When people make up their own God, they come up with a skewed view of who God is. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we serve a loving Father who who gave His only Son to die on a cross for us. If you're sitting there this morning saying, you know, I just don't get that. I I don't, you know, that's fine. (laughs) That's all right. But at least investigate it. At least take it to the next level. At least look at your own life and see if there's sin in there. And if there is sin, what ultimately, how are you going to get rid of that sin? Because if, if you're considering at all the eternal life after this one, it's going to be in one of two places. It's either heaven or hell. And, and what determines the factor there is, is not how good you are or what kind of church you go to or anything like that. What determines the factor is what you did with God's Son, Jesus Christ, who died on your behalf. Have you cried out to Him and asked Him to save you? That's what He wants you to do. And a lot of times it's because of pride. I know when that message was first shared with me by my brother, I just... I thought he was a lunatic. I thought he was nuts. You know, and I remember saying to him very plainly, you know, we're Catholic. What are you talking about? You have to be saved. I remember saying that because I didn't get it. I thought it was all about a church. It's not about a church. This church or any other church, it's about a relationship with the living Lord. And he says here that people outside of Christ don't have that relationship. So they're going to seek after these things. That's why he says, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek. That word seek there has the idea that they seek after it with all their might. Because that's all they have. And they're consumed by material gratification. The Bible says they're the kind of people that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. (laughs) Grab all the gusto you can. That's it. Can you imagine the child of God approaching life that way? That's what Jesus is saying. That as a child of God, this shouldn't be part of our life. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be seeking after these menial things. You seek higher things. The Bible says, set our hearts on things above. Philippians 4, 6 Paul commands us clearly, be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. I mean, if you're not going to be willing to trust in God's goodness and His promises, you're missing the whole point of being a Christian. I mean, so many people in the churches today, they have this empty profession of faith. Oh, I love Jesus. I serve God. And then you look at their life and there's a disconnect. There's a major disconnect. And sometimes you can even point it out to them. You know, the Bible says this. That maybe drinking and carousing isn't the thing that a Christian should do. It actually says it's wrong. Wow, you're, you know, what do they throw at you? You're just being legalistic now. Okay. I'll be a legalist all day long if that's what being a legalist is. 
You're just saying what the Word of God says. And sometimes, you know what? We don't want to go there. Because we have our desire and we have our agenda and we know that if we go to that verse or we go to that portion of Scripture, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess up our little party over here. And so our pride kicks in and says, ah, I'm just going to stay away from that. The Bible says that we are in the world, but we're not to be like the world. John 17, 15 says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus prayed for his disciples and he said, you know what? Don't take them out of the world. Leave them down here in this sin pit. Why? He says that you should keep them from the evil one. You remember earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about us being what? The light of the world. All right. He talked of, about us being the salt of the earth. Okay, he left us here for a purpose. He didn't leave us here for the purpose of coming to church on Sunday and being all religious. That's not what the purpose is. The purpose is, you know what? Go out the four, out of these four walls and find somebody that's hurting, somebody who hasn't heard the gospel, somebody that just needs compassion and love and mercy and give it to them. That's why he left it us here because when we do that they're going to identify the love of Christ in our life and when they do that it gives us the opportunity to share the gospel message with them that's why we're here we're not here to be church people Romans 12:2 says do not be conformed to this world i talked to uh, someone in youth ministry a couple of weeks ago and they came back from Spirit West Coast down in Monterey. Big Christian event with all these bands. He sat me down and he said, have you been to this thing lately? Do you know what goes on there? Said, no, I've been in youth ministry in some years and from what I'm seeing, I don't want to go back uh, anytime soon. But uh, tell me. He said, it's basically, it's the world with Christian garb on. Said the bands, the music, probably 80% of what went on, garbage. He said the world has taken this thing and just wrapped its arms around it. And, you know, you, you got people going to this thing. He said the new thing now is young people, guys, are wearing women's jeans. Tight jeans. I don't know. I mean, I was just like, what? Yeah, that's the new thing. The Bible clearly says, do not be conformed to this world. What do we do? A majority of the church is doing just the opposite. They're conforming to the world. And that even affects the way we look at our circumstances. It affects the way we worry. It affects all those things. God has called us to separate. He called us out to be different. The Bible says that we're a peculiar people. You say, I identify with that. I've met some peculiar Christians. Yeah. I'm not talking weird here. I'm just talking different from the world. So don't get that mixed up. Ask yourself this question. Do I face life like a Christian or like a pagan? Do I face life like one who's trusted Christ? Or do I face life like a Gentile? When things are difficult or the future is insecure, how do you react? You know what? When you answer those questions, it's going to tell you a lot about how much you really trust God. You can sum it up this way. Does my life, does my Christian faith affect my view of life? Does it affect the way I live day in and day out? Because if it doesn't, beloved, and I tell you this in love, either you're not a Christian or you've denied the very essence of your faith. Ask yourself this question. Do I always place everything in the context of my faith? Every trial, every anticipation of the future, every present reality. Is it all under the umbrella of my faith, of my trust in God? He goes on and he says in verse 32. He says, for your heavenly father knows what that you need all these things. 
See, there, that's the big difference between the gods of the heathen and our God. The gods of the heathen are dumb. They're ignorant. They're non-existent. They don't know anything. They can't help their people because they don't exist. You remember in the Old Testament, you remember in the New Testament, you know, uh, with, with Elijah and all that stuff in the Old Testament, you know, they're trying to appease their God and he's not listening. He starts making fun of them. Oh, maybe he's out the lodge. Where'd he go? Oh, we know that story. He doesn't exist. It's not there. It's a false God. But our God, the Bible says, knows everything. Our God transcends time. You know, with God, there's no future. There's no yesterday. He transcends time. With our God, everything is right now. Everything. If you believe that our God loves and cares, and you know the Bible says that He's omniscient, He knows everything. And if, if God knows your life and He knows your needs... And you know that He cares for you because that's what the Bible says. If He knows what your needs are and He cares for you, you know what? You're home free. Your Heavenly Father, in contrast to the other gods of the pagans, knows what you need. That's what Jesus is saying. He not only has the knowledge, but He has the resources and the love to provide your needs. So what are you worrying about? What do you have to worry about? Jesus answers nothing. Don't worry about anything. Worry is unnecessary because of our Father. It's also uncharacteristic because of our faith. But it's also unwise because of our future. Look at verse 34. He says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What's the Lord saying here? The Lord's saying, don't worry about the future. The future is going to have trouble of its own. Just wait till you get into it. Don't worry about it. It's not going to do any good. Providing for tomorrow is good, but worrying about tomorrow is a sin. He's not saying, you know what, you shouldn't plan and you shouldn't save and, and you shouldn't have, you know, go to the grocery store and buy food. So, you know, you're not going to the, 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 the cupboard every day saying, oh, we have nothing to eat. He's not saying that. There's nothing wrong with that. God gives you the means to provide, then you provide. But God is the God of tomorrow, just like He's the God of today. Lamentations 3.23 says that His mercies are what? New every morning. He feeds us just like He fed the children of Israel. Just enough food for each day. Now, in our country, in our culture, we have the abundance of food. This week, my wife and I are saying, okay, we got to eat all this stuff because we're going on vacation for a couple weeks and we don't want it to rot. So we're trying to empty the refrigerator. Last time I checked, the refrigerator still pretty full. So Wednesday night care group, you can have at it. You know, go for it. I don't know what's in there, but probably won't want to eat it by Wednesday. That's for sure. But there's enough worrying about tomorrow going on, the future. You know, there's all this concern about the politics and, and you know, who's going to win the election? Oh, you know what? It's in God's hands. You go out and you vote your conscience. You vote as God leads you to do. And you leave it in God's hands. You know, there'll be a next, another president and there'll probably be another president after them unless the Lord comes back. It's not stuff to worry about. And it causes really a lack of joy in our life when we worry about these things. Fear is a liar. It will cause you to lose the joy of today. And what the Lord is saying is basically, you know, let tomorrow be for tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Just live in the grace of God day by day by day. The Bible says in Hebrews thirteen eight that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, what, today, and forever. It means he's going to be doing the same thing tomorrow that he did yesterday. If you have any questions about the future, just look at the past. Even in your own personal life. Remember a time in your life, maybe you can think back, where you know you were just in the corner, you were up against the wall, you didn't know what to do, you were throwing your hands up, you were just wearing yourself sick. And today you look back at that and you're going, hey, you know what, I got through that. 
Maybe not the way I wanted to, but I got through it. I'm here today. It's good sometimes to look back and see how God has provided. John Stott said this, to become preoccupied with material things in such a way that they engross our attention, absorb our energy, and burden us with anxiety is incompatible with both the Christian faith and common sense. It's a distrust. It's, it is distrustful of our Heavenly Father and it's frankly stupid. That's his quote, not mine. That is what the pagans do. But it is utterly unsuitable and unworthy ambition for Christians. See, we're not spiritual orphans, beloved. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. And He has all the resources at His disposal to meet all of our needs. Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on Thee, because He trusts in who? Thee. And last here, He gives us a promise in verse 33. He says, But seek first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. In other words, get your thoughts on a divine level. Get your thoughts on God. Get them off of your present circumstances. Get them off of the trials you're going through. Get them off of the physical things. Get them on the spiritual things. That's why He throws that word but in there. But. In other words, rather, rather than worrying about your life, rather than worry about these things, seek first the kingdom of God. And that idea of seeking first, it really means to seek first in a line of more than one option. I mean, we all have priorities in life. We all have a lot of things going on. All of our schedules are busy. And we could all probably sit around a table and justify why we're not going to be here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a Friday night or a, or a Thursday Bible study with the ladies. We could all come up with a reason. And in our logic, we could say, well, yeah, I understand. It just shows your priorities. That's all it's doing. It's simply showing your priorities. What are we to seek first? He says there, seek first the kingdom of God. That word is, is basilia in the Greek and it means Christ's rule, the rule of God, the reign of God, the dominion of God in our life. We should seek that which is eternal. When we looked at Matthew 6, 10, we're to pray, thy kingdom what? Come. We're to be lost in the kingdom of God. I, I like to quote uh, John MacArthur is being interviewed on a radio station and they, they turned the thing to, to uh, politics. You know anything about John MacArthur? He's not a real political guy. And they said, well, what do you think about the, you know, how often do you think about the election this fall? You know, it's a pretty big thing. You know, we've got judges at stake and, you know, abortion's an issue and all that stuff. Uh, you know, how much time do you spend? And he said, I don't even think I spend two seconds thinking about it. I mean, there was repercussions across the Christian world. He said it has nothing it has absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. At first I thought, oh, come on, <laughs> you know, that's a little crazy. Then I started thinking about it. I thought, you know what, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Because Jesus said clearly that he was a king. But what did he say? My kingdom is what? Not of this world. Now, he went on to say, hey, you know, you should go vote. You should do your Christian duty. You should do all that. But in the end, it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. We're not going to usher in the kingdom of God through John McCain or Obama. Nothing to do with it. So we need to think about that. We need to put things in perspective. We're called to seek first the kingdom of God. And then he says there, and his righteousness. And what he's saying is don't chase money, chase holiness. Pursue it. He's talking about practical righteousness, holiness in our everyday life. See, I mean, some, some people spend all their time pursuing money, cars, the house on the hill, clothes, so forth and so on. And God says, you know what? I want you to pursue my kingdom and I want you to pursue righteousness. And then he gives us, in the end there, the care that's provided. He says, and all these things shall be added unto you. What do you do? That sounds kind of radical. You're not going to you're not going to kind of live for yourself and kind of generate your own little 
thing down here, kingdom down here. No, we don't do that as believers. We're called to live for heaven. And when we do that, that doesn't mean we're going to be out on the street because he says there, all these things shall be added to you. What things? Food, clothing, shelter, and a future. According to Psalm 8411, if you walk uprightly, you will never have any need. God will take care of those who seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And you know what? Solomon provides for us an excellent illustration of that. He didn't pray for riches. He didn't pray for fancy clothes. He didn't pray for fancy food or a long life. He prayed for what? Wisdom. That's what he prayed for. And when he received wisdom, he received all the rest. If you worry, I want you to know this morning it's a sin. And you need to go before God and you need to confess it. Lord, I do worry. And we all worry. And we need to confess it on a continual basis. Lord, I know that worry is a sin and it's, it's a, showing a lack of trust in you. Help me to stop it. Help me to trust you more. Because it's unnecessary because of our Father. It's uncharacteristic because of our faith. And it's also unwise because of our future. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as uh, you do the work through your word and in the hearts of your people, Lord, I don't know what burdens people brought into this place today. But, Father, I pray that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a God who can meet those needs. You can meet them right there in their their anxious hearts, right where they're sitting right now. And, Lord, the first thing to, to get out of the way is what are they doing with your Son? Have they trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior? Have they come to God and said, Lord, it's not about me. It is, and it's not about me. It's about me because I know I'm a sinner. I have to address that. But, Lord, it's about you. It's about what you want to do in my life. And, God, I, I, I want to yield my life to you. God will answer that prayer. He'll, he'll come into your life in a way that's not scary and not weird, but he'll give you a thirst and a hunger to follow him, to follow his word. doesn't mean you're going to turn around to some radical person on a street corner with a... 16-pound Bible. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about life transformation. We're talking about giving you new desires. Allowing you for the first time in your life to pursue the things of God because He transformed your heart. If you're willing to trust Him this morning, He'll do that for you. Just cry out to Him. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me what I need to do. He'll do that. And as believers, I pray that we would repent of our untrusting attitude toward our Heavenly Father. We all do it, and we do it continually. Lord, it's sin. It needs to be called sin, and we need to turn away from it. And we need to cry out to you. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness, that you're always there for us, no matter what. Father, we pray that you would just bless your word to people's hearts. Give us the rest a good weekend, and and, uh, encourage you next week. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people say Amen.